0: I'm so excited about today's conversation this woman i'm speaking to today it's taken me months to get hold of her hillary wright is a registered and licensed dietitian with over two decades of experience counseling clients of all ages on diet and lifestyle change but now wait for it hillary has a speciality in two areas and those are cancer and menopause so if you have been affected by cancer and if you are eating and yes we are all eating every single day you want to be listening to our conversation. If you've then been thrown into menopause in whichever way, then also listen to this conversation. Hilary is the co-author of The Menopause Diet Plan with her colleague Elizabeth Ward. And in this book, they have turned over every single research paper in looking at what are the fads and what do we know about how to eat when you arrive in menopause, regardless of what way. Hilary also works for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, where they provide nutrition care for patients undergoing treatment, but also cancer survivors. And Hilary has heard it all. If patients come to her and worry about sugar, she will talk them through of what the evidence is, what do we know, and how can she support this patient in making the choices that are right for her or him at that particular time in their treatment or post-treatment. We will talk about all the worries we have. I was so worried and I share with her some quite personal worries I've had over the years. We also talk about fasting. What do we know? What's the evidence? Maybe what is new research out there? And she'll also share with us statistics on how diet can improve our overall health, but also our survival rates and what can help so we can reduce our risks of recurrence this is a must listen to conversation because i think for anyone who's been affected by cancer diet will come up at one point our social media feeds are often full of these new plant-based doctors telling us to eat a certain way other foods to exclude but when you listen in and what i think was so incredible talking to hillary today is it's really not about what you're not eating but i won't give too much away let's dive in Hi, Hilary, and welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I just wanted to press record really quickly because you've already started to tell me what you do in your daily work because I said to you, I don't know if there is anyone else who has expertise in menopause and working with people after a cancer diagnosis. And so you were starting to tell me what you do. Can you repeat that in your daily (laughs) practice? Sure. I have these
1: somewhat different areas of expertise that have grown largely out of my own Um, interest in my own passions and so I have you know I I call it my benefits bearing job at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston which is an internationally renowned cancer treatment center I've been there for 16 years and I also have a private practice outside of that position which is a part-time position where I'm the director of nutrition for um Boston IVF, which is one of the largest fertility treatment practices in the United States. So in that position, I also have this expertise in this condition called PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. And as I was just mentioning, you know, I I actually have twice, this has happened to me where I've had, and probably more because this PCOS is an underdiagnosed condition, but I've had a patient who has PCOS and has a cancer diagnosis. In fact, actually, I actually do have somebody at Dana-Farber right now with the same uh, pairing of kind of niche health issues. And so it's all women's health. I mean, clearly at Dana-Farber, I care for more than just breast cancer patients, but because most of the information on diet and lifestyle, or I should, I don't know if technically most is the correct term, but a lot of the diet and lifestyle research on what seems to be the best way to move on in a cancer survivorship mode comes from women diagnosed with breast cancer, because there's a lot of research in this population, you know, either because, you know, it often strikes women at a time of their life that, you know, everybody knows some woman in their world that has had breast cancer, sometimes younger, younger than other times. Um, But, you know, there's, it's a pink ribbon campaign, you know, you know, they're all over the world where there are a lot of fundraising efforts that go towards raising money for women's, um, you know, breast cancer uh, research, which is really, really important because women's health in general is nowhere near as funded, at least in the United States. Um, that research is nowhere near as funded as much as it should be. So it's really great that a lot of, you know, helpful people have gotten passionate about it, donated funds and funded research in this area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And where did your interests come from? And you are the author with the fabulous Elizabeth and you wrote the Menopause Diet Plan. Yes. And did that come first or did your work with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute come first? Or how did your career sort of develop into bringing those two
1: interesting
0: expertise together?
1: Yes. Well, so when I first started out as a dietitian, I worked in hospitals for six years And in both those positions, I took care of patients, people dealing with cancer. And then I transitioned to an outpatient clinic in Boston. Um, It was a multidisciplinary practice that I, they also had an oncology um, and infusion area and they did radiation there as well. It was outpatient. And because I already had this expertise when I started working in that practice, you know, it was all outpatient nutrition counseling. I went down the hall and I said, you know, I know how to take care of cancer patients. Um, I'd love to take care of our patients here. So I started doing ambulatory cancer care in that setting at the same time, because it was a multidisciplinary practice, I was counseling everybody for, for everything. You know, we saw children, we saw adults, men, women, non-English speakers, people from all kinds of cultures. And part of what we also had there was women's health uh, reproductive health. Mm -hmm. So I saw a lot of women who were pregnant. I saw a lot of women with gestational diabetes. They would, you know, immediately send them to us. And then, Through that process, I actually had my own fertility challenge, where I had what was referred to as secondary infertility, where I had conceived my first child without any trouble, and the second one wasn't happening. So I went down the hall to one of these reproductive endocrinologists, and I said, something's not right. I need you to check out my hormones. And fortunately, I had some minor hormonal tweaking, had my second child, who's now 25, and then I had a surprise third one because I clearly made some assumptions about my hormones. But having been through, on the receiving end of what that's like, um, mm. such a detailed, in-depth analysis of really what it means to be a woman and, and try to bear children gave me a tremendous amount of empathy for that. And then I remember it was it was February of 2000. I had just come back from maternity leave with my third child. And my reproductive endocrinologist said, I have these women that have this condition called PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and I want you to see them. And I had never heard of it, but I've never been one to say no. And so I learned, I read, I read a couple of books. I looked on the internet, which was in its early days. And I found, you know, one other dietitian in New York city who's doing this work through that process. I decided to write a book about PCOS. And then I subsequently wrote a book about diabetes prevention and yeah. Through it all, Liz and I have been best friends (laughs) since college. So we met in organic chemistry. She doesn't remember this, but we were put together as chemistry partners. And we've always supported each other and bounced ideas off of each other. And we always thought we should write a book together. So when it came time to think, you know, we both had room in our dance card to think about a project. They say, write about what you know. And we were both talking to each other about this menopause stuff. The perimenopause stuff, you know, Liz and I talk about this a lot. I, in some ways, feel like perimenopause was harder than actually being in menopause, which is, you know, actually a day in time where you haven't had a period for 12 months. But what we learned through doing this research, and, and we, in hindsight, we, we noticed ourselves, things start changing way ahead of when you're officially in right. menopause. Yes, And that, for me, was the biggest probable kind of revelation with doing this research Is realizing that really what women um, need education around is to how to start paying attention to these issues sooner, like in our early to mid 40s. And as we were talking offline, you know, uh, some women mm -hmm. go through menopause much earlier than that for unfortunate circumstances. So Mm -hmm. the dialogue Uh, needs to happen a lot earlier.
0: And what, what you say hits home for every woman I speak to, whether they arrived in menopause because of surgery, because of um, a chemically induced menopause. I wish I had known a little bit more before it happened. And what you're saying, even if you arrive in menopause, naturally in perimenopause, we need to get women prepared for this phase of their life if you are going through cancer treatment and someone says, I'm going to give you tamoxifen, we need to know. Or many, many women say to me, I wish I was told that this and this could happen. But as it was, we just ended up here without any idea. And then we just feel it's us. And it's a very lonely place to be in.
1: Well, and I think it's important to know what's normal. You know, I think there's a lot of pathologizing about menopause, which makes it feel like something to dread because it's the beginning of the end. And that's not to minimize the challenges that can come along with perimenopause and menopause that can last for years. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, we've always been, Liz and I've always been in the position that like, yes, let's acknowledge the challenges, let's educate, and then let's just do what we can do to contribute to the process to the best of our ability with hopefully the assistance of a good healthcare professional who listens when you speak to try to help you figure out, you know, how to manage some of these things. You know, the interesting thing is, is a lot of the same things that lower your risk of a cancer diagnosis are the best for survivorship are also best for many of the health issues that become more potentially relevant as you go through and beyond menopause. So, um, There's a lot of similarities. It's trying to get those messages across.
0: Yeah. I remember back to my own diagnosis, and I never saw a dietitian as part of my treatment. I guess maybe I would have only seen a dietitian if I had problems. I had questions for my oncologist, and I said, I'm I've gone vegan because from the 1st of January of one particular year, I cut out major food groups, and a lot of what I did then hillary be shocked probably because it wasn't necessarily it was quite drastic but i had no one to guide me i and would actually not, not be shocked
1: because i've seen it many times and that's exactly imagine. where an oncology dietitian can help you find the middle ground
0: um, exactly and do it
1: properly but yes no exactly I mean, if, that's a that's a challenging diet to follow without some good education
0: and so i said to my oncologist and and all i was ever told is whatever you eat isn't going to really make a big difference and that And that I lost trust because I felt, of course, it's going to make a difference. I wanted to believe that I could also control something. And so desperately, Hillary, because, you know, I was so when people are in a really difficult position, you will know they'll try and do anything. Right. For sure. And plus, I would argue that that's not correct
1: what they said. But I've actually heard that many times also. Yeah. And I mean, I think what what is true is that, you know, that you could, you know, as I say at Dana Farber, we've had marathon running vegetarians who still get cancer. I mean, we don't yes. understand everything about it, but there's plenty of evidence about diet and lifestyle patterns that correlate with uh, potentially lower risks of a cancer diagnosis, better survivorship. It, you know, I mean, why would why would anybody not want to be like a good gambler and put their money where the odds are best? Um, Not just from a survivorship standpoint, but from a quality of life standpoint. But the, you know, statements like that, I mean, I don't want to go down that track, but it aggravates me because how someone eats can affect how they feel in their body every day, whether they're going through treatment, whether they're done with treatment, whether they want to feel empowered, that I can actually play a role here instead of just showing up for my scans every whatever period of time and having some blood tests you know, it's important to empower people that they can be involved in their own health.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And then people are thrown into menopause on top of a cancer diagnosis. And I guess what I've learned is I kind of thought you because you would be pleased to hear um, a few years down the line, my diet and approach to it became a lot more balanced. Oh, good mm-hmm. Lord. <laughs> My whole family talked some sense into me and I went on some great courses and I, I, yeah, it's luckily changed for all of us and my diet is full of lovely stuff now. And then menopause added another layer where I thought, oh, do I now need to eat differently for my menopausal body? And then I met you and your colleague Elizabeth and I read your book and a lot of things make sense but I'd like to just go into the nitty-gritty of it with you a little bit so that you can help other people who listen feel empowered that yes there is something they can do but not to make the same mistake as I did but to sort of see what makes sense because what I love about you and Elizabeth is you debunk a lot of myths and I love your little videos because they are (laughs) so helpful yes (laughs)
1: Well, it's, it's too much on the Internet, et cetera, makes healthy eating sound way too hard, makes food sound scary. The reality is individual foods don't influence people's health. They don't turn your health on and off like a switch unless you've got a bad allergy. Then, yes, an individual food could be the end. But outside of that, you know, our body is an amazingly complex environment that will rise to the support of what's happening most of the time and not be, you know, cut off at the knees because you occasionally ate anything. You know, that's the, the fear factor around food is really unfortunate because really what we're trying to do is get people to eat more healthful food, occasionally eat whatever they want, but also appreciate that healthy eating is much more about what you are eating than what you're avoiding, and I know here in this country, oftentimes people define like, what kind of an eater they are by the virtuous things they pass up on. Like, I'm a healthy eater because I don't eat fast food or I don't drink soda. Well, okay, that's good. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're eating enough fruits and vegetables, that you're eating enough fiber, that you're getting some sort of physical activity as often as you can. That you, you know, th- this, this is a much more synergistic, complicated thing that's than just not drinking
0: I've, soda that's the first time i've heard someone put it that way you define yourself to be a healthy eater by what you are eating and not by what you're not eating because i think it, in my in a, early years it was all about oh if you had offered me a tonic water i would have been mortified because that contained sugar oh yeah i mean yeah. i
1: i'm much more uh, in fact there was something that i read recently from the american institute for cancer research or the World Cancer Research Fund there, the European affiliate, they partner together to actually do all the digging at the evidence-based research on the connection between diet, lifestyle, cancer risk, and survivorship. So I rely heavily on mm-hmm. what they have to say because that's their mission. But they, there was some, I have to go back and find this, but it was some study that pointed that out glaringly. What's much more important is what you are eating than what you're avoiding. That, that has the ability to affect your health much more. So you have to get these nutrients into your body for your body to protect and defend you. And that's a different thing than just not drinking Coca-Cola.
0: Yeah. So going back to these organizations that you've just mentioned, what do we know at the moment? If I have been diagnosed with cancer, it's in the past or you're still on a cancer treatment, you're Some in menopause, many women say, I don't even know if my periods are going to come back. Other women like me had surgery, I know that's it. Yeah. What do we know in terms of survivorship? How can we support us? And what do we know where, where do we have evidence? So I consider, as I said, the American Institute for Cancer
1: Research and the World Cancer Research Fund, which is their European affiliate, they partner to constantly look around the world for the well done research on the connection between diet lifestyle risk of getting a cancer diagnosis and cancer survivorship. So what's so helpful about what they do is is that people have to appreciate that nutrition is one of the most difficult things to study because you know so that's why it kind of makes me cringe when we again we talk a lot about I've nothing against superfoods and I like you know green tea and blueberries and Brussels sprouts and everything like everybody else but that that sort of Um, If somebody wanted to, to investigate the health influence of a particular food, there are so many other things about that person's diet and lifestyle that you have to be able to control to hone in on the avocados influence or something. So what they do, and they've now done three international, large international reviews of all the available research on the connection between diet, lifestyle, cancer risk, and survivorship. The first time they did it in 1998. They pulled together all the studies they could find around the world on this topic. They threw out the bad ones. They found the good ones. They kind of collated them by type of cancer. And they gave them to expert groups around the world who were experts in these specific types of cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, et cetera. And they said, read through this research and tell us what looks real. And so when they did it in 1998, they had about 4,500 studies in the end to assess. Wow. They did it again in 2007. And by 2007, the survivorship research was really starting to take off. So by 2007, they pulled together all the studies on cancer risk reduction and cancer survivorship. And at that point, they had over 7,000 studies to look at, farmed them out to different expert groups and said, tell us what looks real. So the first time they came up with, I think it was 15 or 16 recommendations. By the second time, they were able to kind of hone them down to. 10 recommendations that are really eight recommendations with two special population recommendations. And I'll circle back to that in a second. So when they did it again, most recently in 2018, they had over 10,000 studies to look at and a lot more studies on survivors. So again, these are scientists, science matters, (laughs) really, really does. And they put all the collective smart minds together to come up with general recommendations that reflect a dietary pattern yeah. that the, ba- the way I'd like to look at it is things that you can put in your body, but you know, behaviors you can practice that help our body be as resilient as it can be against disease. And so many diseases have common threads that respond positively to what we outline in our book, which is plant-based eating. Now, plant-based eating doesn't mean you have to be a vegetarian at all. It basically means that you want to aim for like two thirds to three quarters of your food choices from less processed plant foods as often as possible, that you focus on healthful sources of protein and uh, carbohydrates, you know, starchy things, ideally whole grains as much as possible. You know, with occasionally doing whatever you want, you know, so you can still live an enjoyable life. You know, so their recommendations are things like, maintain the healthiest weight that you can, you know, without becoming underweight. You know, if I had a dime for every woman I've had as a patient over the years who sacrificed the quality of her diet so much for the sake of trying to maintain that body that she thinks she can maintain, this is one of Liz and I, one of our big mantras, it's okay to not look how you looked when you were 20. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, bodies change with age. And so there's always the risk particularly for women to do what you know throw the baby out with the bathwater throw out the, <laughs> the good with the bad while they try to restrict to control their weight and then not getting enough of those volumes of plant foods so but maintaining a healthy weight influences the environment of your body trying to be physically active you know most days of the week is important so we can I'm just going to list off the you know the main major ones yeah. and we can dig into them individually if you want but it's you know eat a variety of plant foods Varying up the fruits and vegetables people uh, consume matters a lot because a lot of the health benefits of eating fruits and vegetables go beyond the fact that they're mostly water. So they fill you up without loading you down with a lot of calories. They have carbohydrates, protein, fats, depending upon what they are. They have vitamins and minerals. They have tens of thousands of compounds in them that act as the immune system of the plant. So we have an immune system. So do plants and animals, obviously these compounds, we lump them all together. We call them phytonutrients. Phyto just means plant in Greek. And these same compounds that act as the immune system of the plant and that they function as antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, and detoxifying compounds also give plants their color, their smell, and their taste. So if somebody's smelling some strawberries, you're not smelling vitamin C, you're smelling phytonutrients. Hmm. So that's why all the nutrition things will say like eat according to the rainbow, you know, yeah. a variety of colorful fruits and vegetables. It's a lot more palatable than saying eat isocythinates and uh, resveratrol and carotenoids and lycopenes and quercetin and EGCG. You know, people don't eat those. They eat food. So the, the, these balance plate video visuals, it's an infographic. And this is what our plan is oriented around in the menopause diet plan. Yeah. It's an infographic. That's designed to communicate a lot of complicated science in a way that people can understand. It's not just some dietitians' idea of what healthy eating looks like. Every health organization that has an infographic so what are infographics? They're easy visuals to look at to communicate, you know, a more complex message. If you have a plate that has a line down the middle and then one half is cut in half again, and half of that plate um, are vegetables and fruits, and you're eating your fruit more than drinking it as juice. And then a a quarter of that plate is some sort of a healthy protein, preferably less red meat. That's another one of the American Institute for Cancer Research's recommendations. Minimize red meat consumption to no more than 12 to 18 ounces a week and avoid processed meats. Processed meats being the pink things. You know, uh, bacon rashers, I guess you'd say, Um, ham salami bologna. You know, I always say I live in Boston, you know, we're big baseball, baseball fans here. I always say to my patients, I don't care what you do when you go to Fenway Park and watch the Red Sox. You want to have a Fenway Frank, go ahead. Just don't make them a regular player, you know, in your life. So the, the, these, this infographic from the AICR World Cancer Research Fund comes with recommendations on try to eat more seafood, try to eat more poultry you know, include some dairy foods, they're great sources of protein. But also do allow your body enough healthful carbohydrates so that you've got some energy. And you get phytonutrients from whole grains as well, whole wheat, brown rice, quinoa, farro, teff, oats, you know, they all provide great things. And they provide fiber. So you know, in this country, there's a great tendency to think that all carbs are bad, which could not be farther from the truth. So we just show people how to incorporate it in a way that pract- that kind of blends in the portion control that is needed for most women through this phase of
0: life. Again, their whole approach is how to eat. They're hardly saying what not to eat. I mean, I know they talk about um, red meat and processed meats because we know processed meat is so carcinogenic. But apart yes. from that, they're not saying you mustn't. Their approach is if you eat like this, you can reduce the risk of disease. And disease recurrence prevention, right? Correct. Where, where does it come from then that people like me and I went to school, I'm not, you know, not, not educated, that I thought sugar will give me more cancer. If I drink any alcohol, it'll give me more cancer. If I have any red meat, it'll give me more cancer. If I have anything processed, how come so many people like me turn it around and think this is going to give me cancer? Because so many people I know think oh, I'm scared of food. We've almost switched it around from top to head, didn't we? From top to tail.
1: So so I did only get through part of their recommendations ah, and some okay. of those things, so we, you know, to proceed on, uh, I provide some recommendations. Again, none of it is meant to be all or nothing. So they do suggest that people limit their intake of processed foods, added sugars, but from their recommendation comes from the clear association between Excess weight and, and 12 different kinds of cancer. So when they say don't eat a lot of sugar, don't, you know, eat a lot, and again, they don't say eat zero, they just say limit your intake of sugar sweetened beverages, candy cakes, cookies, ice cream, soda, largely because higher intakes of those correlate to weight gain, which is a known risk factor for a number of cancers. And we can right. circle back to the sugar feeds cancer thing because I can give you some a lot of clarity yeah, on that. I'd love to. They do talk about alcohol, they don't say don't drink alcohol. They will say that alcohol does correlate with a number of cancers, and the more alcohol you drink, the higher the correlation. So, if you it's kind of if you talk to the cancer people, they really want people yeah. to not drink a lot. If you talk to the heart people, they don't want people to drink a lot either. But they'll introduce the whole concept of alcohol as an anti inflammatory, as something that thins your blood. You know, potentially associated with a low risk of cardiovascular disease. We always have to remember that cardiovascular disease is the, still the primary killer of women. So I think alcohol, the benefits of it were probably oversold a little uh, for a while. Because mm, mm. everybody now is now saying, feel free to not drink. But if you are going to do so, and this is what the American Institute for Cancer Research does, they say up to one drink a day for women, up to two drinks a day for men. No, you can't hoard them all for the weekends. hmm and have um, awareness of what a serving is. So a serving is five ounces of wine. So I do recommend to my patients, figure out what alcohol-containing beverage you like, and just measure and know what you're doing. Take your wine glass at home, get a five-ounce liquid fluid thing, and see what, you know, five ounces looks like. A shot and a half of spirits, or a 12 ounce beer. So, this is what beers used to be. I'm sure I know it's the same in the UK because I've a cousin there and I, I've spent a decent amount of time there. Uh, many beers are no longer 4.8% alcohol. So, when they're talking about a 12 ounce beer, they're talking about, you know, a typical, like an American talk, like a Budweiser. You know what I yeah. mean? Like a. It's a small beer, it's really. It's a a yeah. Conservative alcohol content. Mm-hmm. So, craft brews are hugely popular in this country. So the alcohol content is higher and the volume is often higher. So 16, these craft beers often sold in these beautiful artwork embossed 16 ounce cans, not 12 ounce cans. So we just have to have awareness about what a portion is and just, you know, you have to find that middle ground between living an enjoyable life and tending to your health. And again, it's routines and habits that affect people's health. And so that's what's worth shoring up on something like alcohol. Kind of don't kid yourself about, about your alcohol intake. Yeah, uh, and you know I'm guessing it's similar in the UK. Studies here in the US during the pandemic found that women in particular started drinking more. Yeah. It is calories too. Don't kid yourself. It's calories. And it also can change our inhibition about what we're eating. Yeah. But they do say if you choose to drink, limit it to one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men, up to... I think that kind of covered the basics of most of them because they're really about trying to transition to a more plant-based diet, limit your red meat intake. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think for a good visual on the red meat, if they say 12 to 18 ounces a week, now I've I've read some pretty dense documents from where these recommendations come from. And so the 12 to 18 ounces is the, the consumer facing recommendation I've read deeply into the documents and seen things that suggest they prefer people limit it to 11 ounces a week. So let's say 12 ounces, the lower end yeah, of the range.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: They don't put it like 12 ounces for women, 18 ounces for men. They don't parse it out like that. Okay. But if you think that a, a pack of deck, a deck of playing cards, um, meat, poultry, seafood about that big is about three ounces once it's cooked. Oh, wow. So about four decks of cards a week of beef, pork, lamb, veal is what the recommendation is, and when they say avoid processed meats. You know, that's a really good example of the challenges of studying nutrition. You know, many people eat a lot of processed meats. I mean, and at fairly low levels is a correlate to colorectal cancer, and possibly possibly other cancers of the GI tract. But folks that eat a lot of processed meats generally are not otherwise. You know marathon running vegetarians. So you have to, you have to control for so many lifestyle factors. And I believe them, it's definitely there. But I also know enough about how complex the human body is. Like Liz and I have said before, it wasn't until I was well into my career where I realized why I needed to take seven uh, semesters of chemistry, so that I can understand, you know, baloney when I see it. And so (laughs) much of what's written on the internet that puts people in a fear state, is written by people that really don't understand how the human body works. Mm. And, you know, again, I don't, I've had patients that won't eat birthday cake because they fear the sugar feeds cancer thing so much. Yeah. That makes me want to cry, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, we can, t- we can dig into the sugar feeds cancer yeah. thing. I was if you want to there. At some there. I
0: remember my twenties, I think they turned six, maybe my twin girls lake elizabeth i've got three girls and we always talk about it because you've got the three boys don't yes. you? your best friend elizabeth had the three girls i've got three girls and it was their birthday and my mum hired a camper van and we all went camping around this lovely lake in austria and i run there so i was training for a half marathon it was a year after my diagnosis and treatment And I was really the whole run for the whole 45 minutes in my head. I had this conversation. Are you going to have the birthday cake? Are you not? Are you? Are you not? And I did struggle. I did have the cake. I don't know whether I enjoyed it. I did enjoy the cake, but I did have a guilt feeling that came with it because up until that time, and I'm going to put this in brackets with my fingers. I know people at home can't see that now, but I thought I've been so good so long. I haven't had any sugar for so long. I've been so good and I'm going to just give up now by having their birthday cake. And I do remember it as a really sad point, looking back. And well, I people can can't see how, me wiping yeah. my
1: tears at you yeah. having worry about eating your birth. I mean, do you want to talk about this sugar feeds cancer thing?
0: I want to. I really want to, because I hear it all the time. And so many of us are worried about sugar and cancer. So go on. What do you know?
1: <laughs> okay. So um, sugar feeds cancer makes it sound like if you have like, A piece of chocolate it's going to beeline to any lingering cancer cells in your body and just specifically fuel them and that is a gross oversimplification of something that's much more complex so what we really have some concern about and uh, like to pay attention to is the fact as i said if someone has a diet that's very full of a lot of added sugars and processed foods they're regularly consuming sugar When we consume any kind of a carbohydrate, whether it's healthy for you or, you know, a food for fun, you know, we don't like to label foods as good and bad that, you know, individual foods are not worth that power. But when you eat carbohydrates within about an hour or so, they're in your blood as glucose, that's supposed to happen, that needs to happen, all the cells of our body use glucose as fuel. Once the glucose shows up in our body, our body then goes to the task of trying to clear that extra glucose. So we always have to have this baseline glucose. An hour after you eat or consume carbohydrates, your blood sugars rise commensurate with how big was that portion of something you just had. So if somebody drinks, you know, a big soda, they're going to have a lot of sugar in their blood. If somebody eats an apple, they're not going to have much at all. And that's important because once the sugar or the glucose arrives in the blood, Your pancreas, which sits right in the neighborhood where the sugar shows up in your blood, its job is to read your blood sugar and secrete out a hormone called insulin. Insulin is what we call a growth hormone, and its main job is to make cells grow by unlocking them so the glucose can get out of the blood and into the cells. That's totally normal, and humans need it. We need that fuel. So human bodies evolved throughout most of human history. There wasn't all this added sugar in processed food. You know, food was much more. Our body had to work a lot harder to digest it. It was harder to come by. And so our body is sort of set up to expect our blood sugars to roll like hills throughout the day. Where your blood sugar goes, the insulin goes because the pancreas reads your blood sugar and follows it. That's all perfectly normal and safe and desirable. The concern about a lot of the, the degree to which these uh, added sugars and refined foods have, have become so commonplace in our diet is that many people, instead of their blood sugars rolling like hills, often have much more exposure to glucose in their blood because of consuming a lot of added sugar, drinking sodas, you know, large portions of um, ref- largely refined carbohydrates. And insulin, remember what I said, it's a growth hormone make cells grow. So if someone is regularly consuming those things and regularly exposing their body to surges of blood sugar, they're going to be exposed to more insulin and insulin makes cells grow, whether they're good for you or bad for you, whether they're healthy cells or cancer cells. Uh. But, but so what we care about is what are you regularly exposing your body to? If somebody's health habits and eating habits are such that they're generally doing this nice rolling hills thing, their blood sugars and their insulin levels are nice and steady. And then they eat something sweet and their blood sugar goes up and the insulin goes up after it. Well, guess what? That's all over with within about three or four hours. There's no lingering effect to that. What matters is what do you revert to as you your baseline eating habits?
0: Mm.
1: The other, does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. Totally. So, so the other layer on, and I talk about this a lot in my pre-diabetes book and my polycystic, over, and also in the, the, the menopause book, is that we have a very large percentage of our population that is, um, is overweight. And excess yeah. body fat is uh, associated with a condition called insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, we know a lot about because in the most advanced form, it causes type two diabetes. But insulin resistance means when the insulin comes out of the pancreas, tries to unlock the cells, the cells are kind of numb to it. They resist the action of the insulin. And the pancreas figures out that happens. So it secretes more insulin to kind of force the action, force the cells open. So, and and that is particularly exacerbated if someone has excess weight and is sedentary because physical activity naturally lowers your blood sugar and our insulin levels, which is why physical activity is such a potent cancer survivorship strategy, why it's it's such a potent diabetes prevention strategy, because physical activity actually triggers the production of chemicals that assist the insulin unlocking your cells. So you don't have to secrete as much
0: insulin to get the job done. If I get this bread, if I have a piece of cake and I'm not feeling bad about it, if I go for a walk afterwards, would that help? Yes. It would. Yeah, because it would. So you you could do that if it it made you feel
1: better. Absolutely, you could do that. But even if you didn't go for a walk, even if it was your birthday and you ate a big meal and you had cake and you were in a food coma, it's all going to be over with, you know, within a few hours. Yeah, Yeah. It's not going to have this lingering effect of, oh my God, I ate some sugar. I just ratcheted up my cancer risk reduction, or
0: recurrence by some measurable... Yeah, when you're talking is the repeated exposure to sugars and carbohydrates that will repeatedly put your body into that state, right? It's continuously. Well, I mean, and the reality is,
1: and I know that there's similar challenges in the UK, you know, there's a lot of folks that their diets could use some tuning up that could use more regular physical activity in their life. Certainly we know um, in this country, I just, updated my pre-diabetes book and I came across the statistic that said 85% of Americans are not eating at least the minimum recommendation for fruits and vegetables, which would be two servings of fruit, three servings of vegetables. And as a result, 92% of women and 97% of men are not eating enough dietary fiber. We now understand that dietary fiber is hugely important to uh, so many aspects of our health. Yeah. Because we have these, this healthy bacteria in our gut called our microbiome, that healthy bacteria eats fiber, produces all these health promoting, including cancer fighting compounds. You know, we now believe this is a big part of the influence of dietary fiber and reduced risks of colorectal cancer is these microbes eat the fiber that's called prebiotics for the probiotics. That's the microbes and produce these things called postbiotics that compounds, which in the case of the, col- the colorectal cancer connection, there are these compounds called short chain fatty acids that are produced by the microbes in our GI tract that are the primary source of fuel for the enterocytes, the cells that line your colorectal cells, and that that seems to lower their risk of becoming cancerous. Wow. So like, this is like food as medicine, like big time, but the, you know, yeah. this, these microbes they make compounds that lower inflammation, uh, yeah. neutralize oxidation, enhance insulin
0: sensitivity, good for your brain. And the reality um, is
1: most of us aren't doing it, so
0: that's well. Always and what you just said earlier is how many women don't eat enough fruits and vegetables every week or every day. I've just read a study recently that more than half of the women in the UK don't move enough at all. So if you're mm-hmm. it's another thing, right? So if you're adding the two together we're not going to set us up. And I love what you said earlier to be the best player at your game, really.
1: Well, I mean, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck if you focus on eating more fruits and vegetables than just not eating sugar. You know what I, I mean? This is so yeah, a lot of that. evidence. I mean, mm. the, these balanced plate visuals like the one we have in our book, these are basically a Mediterranean diet on a plate. You know, the Mediterranean diet is just the world's most studied plant-based eating plan. The DASH diet. We also talk about that. The DASH diet is like the Mediterranean diet. It's like, what can you put in your body to give your body the raw materials it needs to protect and defend you? That is more fruits, more vegetables. You know, the, the DASH diet is specific to lowering its dietary approaches to stop hypertension from Harvard. Yeah. It's specifically targeting lowering blood pressure way beyond just the sod- the sodium. You know, what do people think? You know, you have high blood pressure. We know this is common, more common in women as they get through menopause and beyond. Well, don't eat a lot of salt. Well, yes, that's part of it. But we also know there are a lot of things in foods that help to lower your blood pressure. And they're in things like nuts and they're in things like beans and they're in fruits and vegetables and and
0: seafood. But, But you do differentiate a little bit to the normal Mediterranean diet, don't you? Because you talk about protein. In a more what I love about the book, you've really turned over all the research papers, haven't you? You've done yes. all the groundwork, you've looked you can at like it flip towards... through the back and say, How <laughs> yeah. in
1: God's greener did they read all that stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought what was so interesting was the protein approach that you did make a difference to the Mediterranean diet towards. And I really sort of that really sort of I've always got that in the back of my head. I always ask myself now, hey, Danny, have you got a bit of protein in your smoothie or whatever I'm doing? And that really stuck with me, because can you explain that?
1: Yes. So as we so again, women who particularly women who are chronic restrictors often, you know, so the average person was going to get a good, healthy appetite is is likely getting a good amount of protein. But when it comes to protein, there's a difference between getting enough and optimizing your protein intake. And we know a few things. We know that as we get older, our body doesn't utilize protein as efficiently as it does when we're younger. So, and in fact, in Europe, their um, protein recommendation after you get over, I can't remember the exact age. Liz is really good at this, these charts and numbers. I want to say it's over age 70. In Europe, their recommendation for protein is higher than it is here in the U.S. We also know that protein, particularly for muscle maintenance, is used better when you take it in chunks over the day. Yeah, you distribute it as opposed to not really thinking about it and saying, "Oh, I'm just gonna have a lot of chicken," you know, with dinner. Because we know the only, you know, the only real card we have in our deck to influence our metabolic rate through and beyond menopause is is body composition. And so, if we want to You know, women uh, or people in general reach their peak muscle mass around their early thirties or mid thirties. And then it's this kind of progressive slide. Every pound of muscle mass that atrophies away from disuse is going to slow your metabolic rate a little bit more. So the, the good news is you can build muscle forever. I mean, I remember years ago, reading a study from Tufts university here in Boston that has this big nutrition research center. They went to one of these retirement places and they did strength training with 90 and 100 year old people, and they were able to produce some gains in muscle mass. But it doesn't happen as easily. So we have to be mindful of trying to get protein with each eating episode. If you just try to sit, look at your meals and your snacks and say, Is there a protein in there? Yeah. You probably will get enough. Breakfast is often the more difficult one for people. So, you know, it's just being mindful of, are you getting enough? So a lot of people are not just starting out, oh, and now I need more. People may start from an awareness point of like, wow, do I even get as much as I should be getting all along? Exactly, yeah. And a lot of women don't, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. women who are chronic dieters or women who have carb phobia. So if you, you know, if you're regularly eating for lunch, uh, a salad with some protein on it, and there's really no carbs there, well, we have to be aware that our body has priorities of what it's going to take care of first. And when food comes into the body, the first thing that body is going to go looking for is calories. And it prefers to get them from carbohydrates and fats. But if there's not enough of those around, it's going to start grabbing some of the protein because the primary needs of the body are to keep our heart beating 100,000 times a day and take 25,000 breaths and digestion accounts for 5-10%. to These are not optional calorie burning activities to the body. So if women are over restricting carbs, they're putting the protein at risk of being used as calories when it's not what the body would prefer to use protein for. This is called protein sparing. We want to spare the protein from being used as a calorie source by making sure there's a combination of healthy carbohydrates and fats also present in our diet. So the body can, have choices of where it will spend its nutrients, as opposed to being backed into a corner and say, I'm going to use whatever comes in the front door. Right. Calories, particularly if this woman is exercising her butt off because she has fear of weight gain and menopause. Yeah. Yeah. We can really, we can really get ourselves in a,
0: in a cycle. So do you think food is powerful enough? Say we're in menopause after cancer. Do you think food is powerful enough to help us with our, Brain fog, fatigue, muscle aches, joints, joint aches, all of these symptoms that so many people have. I have messages all the time saying, Danny, I've got all of these symptoms. I'm on a treatment. This is just how I'm feeling now. I've not got access to HRT. So many women believe this is what would give, you know, get all, all of the symptoms rid of for them. Do you think food has the power to help us with those symptoms or is it it's a a really
1: hard question to answer because there could be so many reasons why somebody is feeling the things that they're feeling in their body you know particularly if somebody is actively in cancer treatment or post-cancer treatment and again like you said often these women are slammed into menopause either surgical or hormone blocking menopause what's really interesting is men with prostate cancer go on hormone blockers too. And to listen to them talk, you, they sound just like menopausal women. Oh my God, I'm so tired all the time. I get hot flashes. I can't sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night. It's, it's, it's the same kind of parallel thing. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is that yes, there is research that physical activity is good for stress management. It's good for your brain. It improves insulin sensitivity, lowers your risk of diabetes, lowers your risk of heart disease. Plant-based diets do all of those things as well. So, you know, the, it kind of comes back to the same thing. Like it, like, for example, they do, they've done research, to try to see if eating soy foods may mediate hot flashes and the research is mixed. And so what we would make out of that is say, well, soy foods are healthy to eat anyway, because they're a plant source of protein and maybe try to consume some Regularly in your diet. Now, this is another thing that's really misconstrued in the breast cancer world—that you shouldn't eat soy foods. When in fact, the research tells us the opposite. Yes. So you know, plants contain estrogens just like people do. In the plant world, they're called phytoestrogens. They are biochemically, structurally, not the same as estradiol, which is we what we make, and they're like a hundred to a thousand times weaker. Yeah. But you see the word estrogen in there, and you're soul, you know, turns to ice. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I saw the word estrogen. So there's now been several large population studies around the world, not also, you know, in Asia where they start eating soy at a very young age, where they get cancer, they get less cancer in Asia, and when they get it, it tends to be less aggressive. What's scary is those women emigrate to places like the United States and within one generation their breast cancer risks look just like ours. So it's it's likely completely lifestyle or largely lifestyle related. But now, so both in Asian countries and in mixed population studies that find that women that eat soy foods as part of a plant-based diet don't do worse and may actually do better. And so one of the the ways I try to explain um, how I read about this association once is that the researchers think it could be that these plant estrogens look enough like estradiol that they can plug into these estrogen receptors, that if the estrogen receptors are plugged in with estrogen and there's a tendency for that cell to become cancerous, it might exacerbate the growth, but that the phytoestrogens, the plant estrogens may look enough like those, uh, like estrogen to hook up to the receptor, but don't have the same accelerant ability. So. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, when your daughters were little and you put those plastic things in the electrical outlet so they wouldn't like stick a fork in there and get electrocuted. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the same thing. You know, the electrical outlet holds, you know, it hogs the outlet, but it doesn't conduct electricity. Mm. So we don't know. You know, you see things like um, phytoestrogen pills and, and then soy powders and bars and stuff. They, those may behave differently. So we can't say the same about those. So sometimes women with hot flashes who are breast cancer survivors want to know, can I take is it red isoflavone yeah. pills or black cohosh mm. or you know some mm. of these other things and we just can't say um mm. whether that is a safe thing to do, but we can say you can try to increase your, your soy intake. The the research in terms of benefit may be mixed, but maybe you're one of those people that experiences some benefits.
0: Mm, that's hopeful. So it's your edamame beans, but, it's your soy I mean, milk.
1: Totally. And plant-based eating, there's a big study called the Mind Diet. It's been going on forever. It's all about uh, monitoring mental status. We talk about it in the book. Um, They continuously um, produce research papers that tie plant-based eating, low in red meat, to better brain health. So we could say maybe that if brain fog is part of your problem, maybe harnessing those effects. So the the difference between diet and lifestyle and drugs is diet and lifestyle is a synergistic thing. Drugs produce a, you know, a directed effect. So, but what I can tell you is that most women could stand to take their plant-based eating to the next level. So, and there were a lot of people counting like the lettuce and tomato in their sandwich as the Vegetable with their lunch when it's really not a big enough portion. I call we those bonus
0: vegetables. We can pimp up your plate, can't we? That's a can. lot. <laughs> it's like a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you a last question? Because it always comes up. And what do you before before I ask you actually? What I why I? It's not that I don't believe other scientists and dietitians. However, you know, you have doubts and you sure, wonder sometimes. Because you advocate for a plant-based diet, but nor you or Elizabeth are fully vegan. That's why I really believe you. (laughs) And that sounds really weird. And there's no sort of logic behind that. But you make it accessible and you can still say there are real benefits for you to eat a certain way. And you're not saying to me, don't eat the rest, but you're telling me the benefits of eating a certain way. And it's, again, you're showing me what I can do rather what I shouldn't do. And that's so empowering. That is amazing. Well, and, you know, if you emphasize enough
1: of the trying to get some of these things into your diet that you want to be eating more of, if you do that enough, it's going to nudge out some of the less desirable stuff, first of all. Yes, yeah, yeah. and, you know, and, and I've read research studies and, you know, we have to do journal clubs for each other at Dana-Farber, you know, and the um, nutrition oncology team. And I remember reading a research study that was comparing uh, vegan diets to plant-based eating that included seafood. And some studies suggest that that is healthier. So what's healthier is, is always going to likely vary some from one person to the next. But what we need to be realistic about is what are people willing to embrace and how much of a difference does it make whether you're fully vegan? Now, people can, many people decide to be fully vegan for other reasons besides nutrition. You know, it yeah. could be environmental, it could be yeah. love of animals, could be lots of things. But, you know, I've always said, there, you know, the good news is there's no like vegetarian police like hanging in the bushes <laughs> that are going to come out and bust you if they see you eating, you know, a chicken sandwich
0: or something. You're so right. You're so right. <laughs> in the yes. early days, in the early days, my mom said to me, Danny, whatever you focus on expands. And to her, then it seemed that I was just focusing on what I shouldn't eat. And she said, imagine you're in a dark room, you turn your headlights on, and you just focus on what you can't eat, your cakes and your sodas and, and all of those things. She said, it's mad because you would want that even more. It'll escalate and it'll grow bigger. And she said, imagine you just focus on what you want to be eating instead. And you sort of just what she said to me from a very sort of, you know, emotional mother to daughter sort of conversation. You've just sort of almost translated into the science or you're backed up by science. And it's the first. I time mean, it's I it's, of, it's yeah.
1: simple. The influence of what I call foods for fun. It's simple dilution. It's like a dilution. You know, I mean, if you've got a, a bucket of water and you put a drop of something in it, it's not going to change the bucket of water very much. You know, I mean, if if you if your general diet is good and and decent and you're still enjoying food, you know, Liz and I, it it crushes us to see people overly stressed out by occasional indulgences that have no lasting impact. You know, I mean, it's it's we have to trust that all your good efforts are still there holding the house up, you know, should you decide to partake in something unique, It's not going to make the walls collapse. (laughs) Yeah. We just overblow it in in such an unnecessary way.
0: Yeah. And I guess there are two camps. There are some of us who want to do everything and change everything we've done and to give it our best shot. And then there are some people who don't believe in it at all. And they just carry on like they always have. And both is fine because everyone is so differently wired. Um, Well, and readiness can't be forced. Readiness
1: is is Mm. everything. But we know that stress is not good for you. So what what worries me, because without a doubt, you know, we've always said among my nutrition colleagues at Dana farber our most stressed out patients are, are our breast cancer patients. Yeah. Because there's just too much information out there. You know, there is clearly too much information. The yeah. point where too much information becomes counterproductive. Because you get whiplash trying to factor in everything that you read, written by
0: God knows who on the internet. I know. I know. And you know what? Um, a nutritionist once said to me, she said, Danny, you've put so you put your whole body under so much stress by having such a restricted diet for so long. I think you could have had a burger or a McDonald's <laughs> every week, right. and your body would have been under the same antioxidative stress. And I was laughing because I could have kind of like, I know what she meant. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's
1: stress is definitely not good for you. And stressing about healthy eating and all that stuff is it is in the end, if it's exacerbated and chronic, it's another source of stress.
0: Yeah. My last question for you is on fasting. And it often comes up when people are going through cancer treatment and there are some chats in the community that might say or suggest if you fast whilst you go through chemo, maybe your drugs work better. I know Mm -hmm. even 10 years ago, I've heard that. And then now there is so much to 5 to diet. There's so many different ways of fasting. What do you and Elizabeth or you and your colleagues, team members, what do you suggest to your patients? If someone says, hey, Hillary, I want to fast. What's the best way?
1: Okay, so the first thing is there is a lot of interesting um, and evolving research on fasting during cancer care that is still evolving and not to the point where we implement it with our patients as regular advice. Though we're always there trying to partner with our patients. If, if I'm not, you know, I'm there to try to, you know, I'm not the one with cancer. I'm not going to tell you, you can't do something if I don't think it's going to hurt you. But sometimes some things like unbalanced vegan diets and dramatic weight loss, yeah. yes, that could hurt you. So I'm going to try to talk you out of that. There were so many different kinds of fasting. So this, this type that you kind of alluded to, fasting a couple days before, and, you know, a couple of days after chemotherapy, does it make the chemo more effective? Does it reduce the side effects? You know, we're kind of watching that and to see, we always have to balance in the equation is that we know that if someone who is going through cancer treatment loses a lot of lean body mass, that is a lot of what leads to people's downward spiral, losing a lot of muscle, organ t- tissue from undernutrition. nutrition. So if someone is able to eat well in between and they decide they're going to fast, you know, I still what what I'm not yet satisfied yet is that uh, are there any incremental measurable drops in lean body master in each of these little fasting episodes? And how do you mediate that? And there's so many considerations Mm. that would come into play. How old is this person? What is their baseline health like? Mm. Are they on a curative path? Is this palliative Um, What are their beliefs, you know, so that it's, it's a hard question to answer specifically, Yeah, Yeah. but there are more kind of general ways to apply fasting. Many of which I don't, I'm not a big fan of um, non-sustainable changes. So fasting implies eating less than 25% of your calories in a day. So there are people that are doing a lot of fasting for weight control for like weight loss, where they might do five, two fasting, where they eat what they want for five days, fast for two days, or every other day fasting. The only one that I think really has staying power for most people is what we call extended time fasting, where out of every 24 hour period, you try to allow yourself, you know, um, a meaningful amount of time when your body is not engaged and all that, you know, that thing I was talking about with the carbs yeah. and the glucose and the insulin, yes, yeah. you know, we eat food, you know, insulin is just part of it. There's all kinds of growth hormones that get released into our body that pick up all these nutrients, tell them where to go and what to do. And fasting really means that your body has done that after the last meal that you ate, and now your insulin levels and your other growth hormone levels are down for a meaningful amount of time. And so there's evidence with as little as 11 to 12 hours of fasting that it may benefit health uh, as relates to reducing your risk of diabetes. You know, who knows about cancer? You know, a lot of these things are evolving. You're basically talking about going to bed. I'm basically talking about getting up and understanding that circadian rhythms, which yeah. are how our body functions differently based on when the sun is up or the sun is down.
0: Yeah. And that includes
1: insulin function and a lot of other things. Every cell in mm-hmm. our body, including all those microbes that we cohabitate with, they wake up with the sunrise and they're more active during the sun up time of the day in anticipation of the sun going down, you know, cause prior to Thomas Edison and electricity, you know, <laughs> the sun went down and the campfire went out and people weren't out there hunting and gathering in the dark. So our body kind of follows this kind of tracking with the sun. And so I really object to intermittent fasting where they say, don't eat breakfast and then eat from like 12 to eight o'clock. They do that a lot in this country in uh, CrossFit, which is you know one of these uh, high intensity workout places. It's part of their culture. To me, that just completely robs you of all these morning hours when your body is probably really primed to metabolize food. So basically means eat enough at breakfast, eat enough at lunch, have a snack between lunch and dinner. That's a carbohydrate protein snack. You know, we have lots of options of this in the book. If it helps you to manage your hunger so that dinner is not, you know, twice the size of every other meal and then be done with it. But a lot of times people are eating after dinner because they didn't oh, yeah. eat enough during the day. So our, yeah, our yeah. food intake is kind of going like this, escalating and getting and peaking at night when we're probably metabolically least capable of handling it. Whereas what we really wanted is that nice rolling hills thing starting reasonably early in the day with proactive attention to giving yourself enough opportunity to eat fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, seafood, poultry, you know, dairy, low fat dairy, and like, you know, give yourself a chance to get in enough healthy food to give your body the support it needs.
0: And that's basically just paying attention to what we do now and how can it apply a little tweak isn't it because i'm going to go and teach a yoga class later tonight and i know if i don't pay attention i come home and i snack not because i need the calories or because i'm particularly hungry because the habit to have a cup of tea and a biscuit or you know anything and but now paying attention to this i could actually extend that window of fasting as you say overnight by another couple of hours and it wouldn't do me any harm because i don't need those calories I'm telling you, you so might have your tea and your biscuit in the afternoon yeah. or something. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, it's paying attention, right?
1: It's about yeah, yeah. But you know, I had a, a a conversation with one of my clients a few months ago where she was referring to the carrots and the celery in her stir fried, her vegetable stir fried rice as the vegetables with dinner, and we talked about that being yes, that counts, but it's bonus vegetables. It's not enough volume. <laughs> and after I did that, I went into my kitchen after my workday. And I put an apple and an orange and a cup of baby carrots and a cup of broccoli crowns and two cups of arugula and a bowl. And I took a picture of it. And now I'm, I'm regularly showing, I put it on my, my Instagram thing. I'm re- regularly showing my, see that, that is the, the bottom line. That's the bottom rung. If you're not eating that, you are not eating the minimum recommendations for fruits and vegetables. And the stuff I read in prep for the pre-diabetes update says
0: most people are not doing that. Yeah! Wow thank you what's so mad is I had all of these emotional years and going on this own journey and then slowly unpicking it and putting it all back together in different ways it's a fascinating process and I know so many of us are talking about food and how we can improve our menopause and Cancer experiences and survivorship is this big thing. We want to do our best and it's so good to be guided. Thank you for being our guide. It's great. Oh, you're
1: welcome. I mean, this might be just a good time. It could be a motivating time to take stock and say, maybe you're saying, I don't feel great. I'm wondering if I could feel better. Let me see if I'm actually getting, getting those, you know, we, sometimes I think the healthy eating recommendations go flying over our head. We don't really think about the fact that I'm actually not really doing that. So maybe I could feel better by actually putting my focus
0: there. So it can be a
1: motivating time of life as well. Yeah.
0: I'm so glad I spoke to you and I'm so excited that so many more women can listen to our conversation. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Wow. I loved talking to Hillary and I'm not sure about you, but it's really taking me back to how did I eat before I was diagnosed? And in my case, because I never really struggled with weight i was eating two slices of cake when people had one slice of cake because i didn't need to worry i grew up in austria and i loved salami sandwiches anything with salami so processed meats and i was there and then my cancer diagnosis happened and then everything changed and like i said for me from one day to the next quite drastic and now i get messages from cancer survivors every single week who tell me they're really worried about their diet and if they've been really strict for a period of time, they then worry about becoming more relaxed. And so it's normal. And I just wanted to highlight this. This is a process and the way we eat will change over the months and the years. And that's a good thing. I think it would be really boring if we ate the same way for all of our life. And so it's good to make changes. And I hope Hillary's interview today has helped you understand exactly what are myths, what are fads, and where do we have evidence. And there is plenty of evidence to show that how you eat can have a huge impact on your overall health and well-being. And I hope that is a real motivation for you to eat the way that is right for you so you can treat your beautiful bodies in the best way you can. Lots of love, and as always, if you could please rate and review this podcast and also subscribe to it and if you have someone who's been affected by cancer but is maybe not in menopause then also share this episode because i think there's so much value in what hillary has to say for all of us cancer survivors out there thank you for listening again and i chat to you next week